It is Mother's Day today, and I offer uh, Mother's Day wishes to all who are gathered uh, here today, uh, all mothers. And I think uh, one of the, the beautiful things that the Lord does when he calls us to himself is that he draws us into a community. And in that community, he asks us to relate to one another as family members, brothers and sisters in Christ, mothers and fathers. So I have not just been uh, blessed by the mother figures in my life uh, who are biologically related to me, but I have also been blessed by an innumerable number of spiritual mothers who have spoken into my life in one way or another and have helped to transform me and mold me uh, into the person I am today. And so there are many, many, uh, countless number of women that I am thankful for uh, that have taken the time to invest in me. And so thanks for uh, all of our women who are gathered today, who are of the age of motherhood, who can be looked upon as spiritual mothers in our community and can invest in the lives of all who are part of the CNBC family. Thank you. We are continuing in our study through the book of Exodus today. Today we are in chapters 33 and 34, and we get to talk about something that all of us love to talk about today. Sin. Woo! One of our favorite little three-letter words. It's hard. It's hard to talk about it. Hard to confront it. Even harder for us to look at it and imagine and think through where God is in relationship to all of it. Sin is destructive. It divides, it severs, it breaks relationships. Broken relationships often become a source of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame, those are feelings that are painful. We don't like those feelings, so we cover them with, with more acceptable or comfortable feelings of anger, bitterness, hostility, fear, or indifference. In the corrosion of relationships, when there's sin, the bridges are burnt. Trust is broken. And we need to cover ourselves or feel like we need to hide or cover someone else. We witness this firsthand in the Garden of Eden, where sin brings new feelings of guilt and shame. These are uncomfortable feelings for Adam and Eve. Feelings that lead them into behaviors of blame, excuse-making, and hiding. And we press on a gigantic question today related to our faith. How does God respond to the sin of his people? In Exodus chapter 32, we witness this newly formed nation of Israel fall prey to the root of all sin, pride and idolatry. The idea that we can create something with our own hands to save ourselves. And as we walk through that difficult chapter together, we came to the realization and understanding that these sins, pride and idolatry, they aren't just sins of a people long ago, but they are still sins of the people of God today. And so today, we enter a portion of the text that reveals God's response to his people's sin. 
And we will discover today that we serve a God who brings restoration. A God who stays. One who is always with. A God who even in the midst of our sin, when we feel like we need to hide, knows our name. A God who is willing to reveal His goodness, His grace, and His mercy. One who lifts us and puts our broken pieces back together. We are in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. If you have your copy of the scriptures today, you can turn there. This is truly a captivating portion of scripture we're going to be examining today. There is an intimacy in the language here that is very intentional. Our sin does not cause God to abandon, flee, or forsake. Instead, we will find on the coattails of Israel's idolatry, Moses discovers a God of compassion, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. In our encounter with the text today, we're going to explore three questions. First, when we sin and fall short of God's glory, will he abandon or forsake us? Second, what assurance does God give us that he is with us even as we forsake him? And finally, how might we reflect the glory of God that has been revealed to us to a world that does not yet know him? As we prepare to consider the text this morning and read it together, let's go before the Lord and ask him to help. Father, we come before you today in need. We need you, Lord. We sin, we break covenant, we fall short. The lessons that we learn when we look through a book like Exodus, the lessons that we learn when we look into the New Testament, the lives of many of the people who were considered the most religious of their day, those lessons, Father, teach us that sin is still here and apart. And Lord, it's why we need to look to you. We need you to help us. We need the presence of your Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus to form us and shape us and mold us into the community and into the people that you want us to be. And Father, if we're honest with you, our fear is that in our sin, in our brokenness, you will be nowhere to be found. And Lord, the truth of your word is that that couldn't be any further from the truth. You are with us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You're not going anywhere. So we look to your word today with hopefulness. We look to your word today with hearts that are heavy for our own failures and shortcomings. Lord, in advance, we confess and repent of sin in our lives now. We admit and acknowledge that we need to turn to you and seek forgiveness and restoration, the kind that only you can give. So we lay our lives together before you and ask you to change us through the power of your word and the Spirit's work in it today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Exodus chapters 33 and 34, we're going to pick up in chapter 33, verses 7 to 11 today to begin. Chapter 33, verses 7 to 11. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Would God remain present and be persistent even with a broken and rebellious people. Moses wasn't going to wait to find out. He and the people were still able to observe this great pillar of cloud above their encampment. And though they had given glory and honor to a God that was formed by their own hands, and though God had removed a special measure of his presence from among the people, we find that he had not abandoned them. A hopeless faith clings to the image of a God who abandons his people in their sin and failure. And though we may deny him by our words or our behaviors or our actions, the scriptures tell us he cannot deny us for he is unable to deny himself. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. So Moses separates himself from the people To seek an audience with the Lord. This tent is not the tabernacle. It has not yet been constructed. Verse 7 reveals that the tent was not just available to Moses. But also to anyone who would dare seek an audience with the Almighty. And in the grief of Israel's sins. What we discover is that Yahweh remained present And available for those who would seek him. And yet, the removal of the tent remained both symbolic and necessary. It was a sign that God is holy and he's set apart from the sin of his people. Not participating in it while he remains available to them. Moses is the intercessor here. And as the people watch their leader have audience with the God of creation, the people are moved towards postures of humility, submission, worship. And verse 11 reveals the intimacy of these encounters. Moses would speak to God as a friend, face to face. Face to face engagements, they promote attachment 
relationship building. They build bridges that support trust and security. God's love was not lost. He was still present in a very significant way with the nation. Later writings in the book of Numbers would attest to this special friendship and intimacy that was shared between God and Moses. If you look at verse 7, my servant Moses, he was not like this. He is faithful in all my house. Verse 8, with him I will speak face to face openly and not in riddles, and he will see the form of the Lord. Moses would be honest with God, and we're going to see this as we continue through the text. He's wrestling, he's wrestling with his own theology and his own understanding of God's presence and his persistence and his faithfulness with his people, even as they stumble and fail their way through the wilderness. And these struggles are going to be revealed in the rest of this chapter and much of chapter 34 in this sort of call and response dialogue that we see between Moses and the Lord. The heart of Moses' struggle is the heart of our own struggle. While we wallow and wade through the wilderness here on earth, is God present with us even as we fail? And if he is, then perhaps we could sum up all of Moses' words here with God and the heart of what he's asking in just two words as we examine the text. Show me. Show me. Look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you've been saying to me, Bring this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. But you said, I know you by name. And also, you have found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your way that I may know you, that I may continue to find favor in your sight and see that this nation is your people. In Moses' first of three requests, he's asking God, show me your way. And the purpose of this request is threefold. It's a great request. It's a request that can still be for us today. Lord, show me your way. And Moses is asking for three reasons. First, he personally wants to know the ways of God. He wants to see and understand what God's ways are. Second, he desires the favor of the Lord. To be upon him. And finally, he needs to know God's ways and have God's favor so that he might help this young, fledgling nation know how to rightly relate to God. God's first response, it's in verse 14, it's simple and it's concise. Take a look. The Lord said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, if you remember back to chapter 32 in verse 10, the people had fallen into idolatry. And do you remember what the Lord asked Moses to do? The first thing he asked Moses when, when their idolatry was solved, remember what he said? Leave me alone. Do you ever feel that way? Mom's here today. Have you ever felt that way? 
Leave me alone. He asked Moses, give me a rest. It's the same, that Hebrew phrase, the the phrase that's translated here, give you rest, it's the same phrase that's used in chapter 32, verse 10. God has watched his restless people fashion for themselves a useless God to give them a false sense of assurance and security in the uncertainty of their wilderness. God watches his people today continue to fashion useless gods to give ourselves a false sense of assurance and security in the uncertainty of our wilderness today. Sometimes we fashion political gods. Sometimes theological ones. We sometimes make idols of human leaders. Other times we fashion them from forms of work or pleasure. Sometimes we build them ourselves. Sometimes we build our own idols. Other times we inherit the idols of the generations that have come before us. But all of our idols stem from our restlessness. And our restlessness stems from our faithlessness and hopelessness in our lack of belief that God is always present with us. There's a fear. The same fear that the Israelites are wrestling with here. Fear that he will or he already has abandoned us. Or that we must do something or make something of our own hands, of our own working to appease him and restore his favor. And that compels us to follow all sorts of lifeless idols. That's not the promise of God. God promises to give his people rest, to be with his people And to give them rest. It's heard even in the words of his son Jesus. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Church. The people of God. In Christ. Should be a restful. Not restless people. Our sense of identity and security is found in our adoption as children into the family of God. We are children of the living God. He is with us as our Father, as our King, as our Lord, as our Savior. And He will give us rest. So Moses continues this call and response dialogue. Look down at verse 15. Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not take us up from here. For how will it be known then 
that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we will be distinguished, I and your people, from all the people who are on the face of the earth? Moses presses further into the promise of God's presence here. He is beginning to pull on this thread of truth that we need when the guilt and the shame of poor decisions of sin and idolatry haunt the paths that we journey on here on earth. There is an acknowledgement from Moses that without the presence of God, he did not want to continue. A necessary dependence for our lives in this world. It's revealed in this acknowledgement. It is the very presence of God indwelling and enriching the lives of his people that is to set us apart through the victories and struggles that we encounter here. God's presence in and through us must cause us to live and look differently from those who fail to realize and cling to the power and effect of his presence. And there are many in our lives, friends, who fail to recognize, who do not acknowledge that God is present. I hope that all of us know people in our lives that do not yet know God, that are far from him. That does not mean that God is not still present. He is present. They don't acknowledge it. They don't realize it. They don't cling to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. They can't see it. They are blind and dead in their trespasses and sins. According to the ways of this world, they need an awakening from the Spirit. The light of the world still shines in the darkness. Today, God's Spirit that He has given inhabits His people, enabling us to shine and live with great clarity and purpose. And we know that we've found favor with God when we acknowledge and affirm our dependence And our need for him, calling upon him through the patterns of prayer and intercession and supplication. That's what this conversation is. Moses is interceding again for his people. He's having face-to-face dialogue with the Lord. Acknowledging his dependence, acknowledging his need. We said it a few weeks ago. We need to grow and be formed as a community that practices prayer individually and independently, yes, but also corporately, coming together and recognizing in community, not just individually, but together, that we need the Lord. That's powerful. And it's a powerful testimony, not just to our community, but to our community outside as well. God's response to Moses' second request is found in verse 17, and it's filled with hope and with life. Take a look. This is such a powerful sentence. The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing also that you have requested. How gracious is God. For you have found favor in my sight, and what? I know you by name. Seven children in my home. 
I know their names. Woohoo! Should get a badge for today. I do confuse them often, especially Brody and Yuri. Sorry, I don't know why. How many children does the father have? Can we even fathom the sheer number of children that are part of the kingdom? That will be part of the kingdom. And he knows every one of our names. And the scriptures tell us that he gives his children good and precious gifts. And the scriptures tell us that not only does he know our names, think about how wonderful that is. Now this doesn't mean as much for me as it does for many of you. But he has numbered every hair on our head. (laughs) What beautiful truths. I tell my kids all the time, I have just as much hair as you do. It's just shorter. (laughs) he has them all numbered this is incredible I just can't imagine Moses sitting in a tent with the Lord face to face wondering what in the world was going to happen to the nation as they had just fallen into this grievous heinous sin of idolatry and for God to tell him in that tent as face to face I know you by name. I don't think the Egyptian gods would have been able to make the same claim of the people. Well, Moses, he feels like he's on a roll here. I mean, I think he has to in terms of all that God is willing to grant him and what he's going to do. The bases are loaded. It's baseball season. So Moses is going to tee up and go for the grand slam. This is it right here. Verse 18. A request that if granted would send Moses and all of the people out of the ballpark. Moses said, show me your glory. I can, oh man, come on Lord. Let's go. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. The Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before your face, and I will proclaim the Lord by name before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he added, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place by me. You will station yourself on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. What a massive request by Moses. And within God's response, there's this theme Uh, For chapters 33 and 34, that really becomes uncovered and revealed. In his response to Moses, God is going to draw upon a word that's already been introduced earlier in chapter 3 and will continue through chapter 34. It is the word face. Twelve times 
In two chapters, face is used. It is the greatest frequency of this word across any two chapters in all of the scriptures, highlighting the intimacy of this encounter. Our faces, in many ways, are the parts of our body through which we come to know and experience our world. Through our faces, we hear, we see, we speak, we taste, we smell, and we behold much of the goodness of God and much of the difficulty and brokenness of sin in this world. Our faces are powerful tools for bonding, for connection, for attachment and affection and care. And though our faces are fearfully and wonderfully made, none, none of our faces can handle the full beauty, wonder, and display that is God's glory. Now faces and names are perhaps two of the most vital parts of building an intimate and personal relationship with another person. When you meet somebody for the first time and you want to start to build a friendship or relationship with them, it's pretty important that you remember their face so the next time that you see them, you know, oh yeah. And it's also pretty important that you remember their name. Because we have a different relationship with the guy in the grocery store that we see, who when we see him coming down the aisle, we're like, hey guy. Then the guy that we see in the grocery store, who when we see him coming down the aisle, we say, hey John, how you been? Face, name. God sees the value of both. He highlights the value of both. He knows the value of both. First, God's going to pass before Moses' face. He's going to protect his face from seeing all of his glory. But then God's going to proclaim his name in Moses' presence. God knew Moses' name, and God would ensure that Moses knew God's name. They're going to know each other's names. One of my favorite lines in one of my favorite movies all time growing up, let's play a fun game to get to know each other's names. Right When we get together in a class, we always used to do that. You go around a circle, everybody plays a game and try to get to know each other's names. It's important. I tell my kids all the time when they're on teams and in sports programs and they go to school, learn people's names. It's important. Moses also needed to be assured that the people, he needed to know that the people did not change or detract from God's nature in any way, regardless of their behaviors. That God was high above, even though he was with. And God assures him. He gives grace to who he desires. He pours out his mercy on whom he chooses. There is no injustice with God, because God's justice is not dependent on humanity, but rather is held up within his perfectly just and righteous nature. What we need to know, and what Moses needed to know, is that God was going to deal righteously and justly with his people. Granting grace and giving mercy, having compassion and providing forgiveness and salvation according to God's good pleasure. Still today, friends, church, this is great for today. God still promises forgiveness Salvation belongs to the Lord. And those who call upon the name of the Lord today will be what? 
saves. Wow. Yes, and amen. And so God allows His glory to pass by Moses. While Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock, he's covered by God's hand until God's front has passed by and all Moses is able to see is his back. The imagery here is that we see glimpses. We see glimpses. The full brilliancy of God's presence would overwhelm Moses and the people of God to the point of death. So we get glimpses today or the afterglow. They're signs, symbols. The scriptures in the New Testament say it this way, for now we see but dimly. Spectacles that point us towards a greater future. One that promises a time in Revelation chapter 22. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship Him and they will what? See His face. And now His name will be on their foreheads. Face and name. No, God's glory would not yet be fully seen by his people. His people would be given the gift of his grace and mercy symbolized in these new tablets that would be formed. There was going to be a fresh beginning, a new beginning, restoration, and all of it begins to materialize as we step into chapter 34. Take a look. Let's pick up in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the Lord by name. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with children and children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed to the ground and worshipped and said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord go among us, for we are a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. If we read over this too quickly, we will miss the marvelous ways in which God defines his own character and his own nature. What does God say about himself? That's what I want to know. In the midst of Israel's sin, in the depths of their sin and their failure, how does God define himself in relationship to them? He is the great I am. He says that he is compassionate and gracious. He says that he's slow to anger. It indicates his desire to bear with his people. His patient kindness leading us towards repentance. Giving us time to repent and be reconciled unto God. He's abounded in loyal love and faithfulness. He's eternally loving and true. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. There's three distinct ways here to describe our fallenness and our shortcomings. The first is iniquity. It points towards the symptom of human depravity. The second is transgression. It points towards failures of righteous and just living found in our 
rebellion and our unwillingness to love one another as Jesus has commanded us to, and then generally sinned, aimed at the way that we stray or that we choose our own ways over God's. And though God forgives sin, he will also respond to sin by not leaving the guilty unpunished. Those who reject God, who turn from him, who follow the ways of the world, who sin against one another, sin against God, they will be treated rightly and justly by God. Friends, sin is, it's pervasive. Its consequences are passed down, as we see here in the text. We are born in sin. We are parented and raised by sinners, right? We are discipled by sinners. We are friends with sinners. We worship together with sinners and saints, yes, but we still sin. Let's not fool ourselves or pretend. Our idols, the idols of our culture, of our politics, even of our inherited faith traditions, they have an effect, and they often get passed down from generation to generation. And eventually a generation comes along and dismantles the idols of previous generations, while conspicuously or inconspicuously adopting and replacing the idols of previous generations with their own updated versions. All of this, it sounds hopeless, right? It's not. But it is all part of a vicious and pervasive consequence of sin in this world. It's here. There's, there is sin in the world. We have to deal with it. We can't deal with it. Somebody else deals with it for us. And that someone's name is Jesus. And if we confess and repent and turn from our sins, then the scriptures tell us that God is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But see, the challenge, church, is we can't do that if we pretend like we don't sin or that we don't live in sin. Or that it's not part of our day-to-day life. No, no, not me. Ooh, that's those people. <laughs> that's this person. Your pastor's a sinner. Yes, I, I'm saved by the grace of God, so I'm a saint too. Praise the Lord. Amen. Give him glory for that work. But my goodness, I still live here. I still have flesh just like you still have flesh. The temptations in this world are real. They're evident, they're apparent, and they're everywhere. Moses' response to God's powerful self-disclosure is to do what? He bows and he worships. He asks God to move within and among the stubborn and rebellious people to pardon their iniquity and their sin and to make the people, isn't that beautiful, God's inheritance. What does it mean to be adopted as a child of God? That's part of that inheritance. God's inheritance. 
A request to which God responds with the renewal of the promise. Look at verse 10. God said, see, I am going to make a covenant before all of your people. I will do wonders such as have not been done in all of the earth nor in any nation. All of the people among whom you live will see the work of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am doing with you. Fearful not in a scary way. Don't read that like ghosts and goblins. Fearful in an awesome way. That word, think of awe-inspiring wonder, like when you stand at the Niagara Falls and you look out over that or you see a, a wild beast in the wilderness just untamed, like a big bear or a lion, and you're like, whoa, wow. It's like awesome. What follows in verse 10, much through the rest of the chapter, is repetitive of the commands and the covenants that were given to Israel before their fall into idolatry. God's reiterating to Moses that his standards have not changed. God is seeking loyal love in his covenant partner. So in verse 11 of 34, he calls for their obedience. Keep well or obey the commands I am giving you. Verse 12, watch over yourselves that you do not make covenants with other inhabitants in the land where you're going. When entering the land of promise, they were to avoid the ensnarement of false gods. Verse 13, destroy those altars, smash those images, cut down the Asherah poles. God then in verse 14 recounts another aspect of his nature. He recounts his name as a jealous God. Meaning he is the only God that's deserving of worship. And he does not need man-made idols to represent him. Rather than spending their time making and bowing down to self-made, lifeless idols, God encourages, commands, and invites them to participate in a sacred community together. Verse 18, keep the feast of the unleavened bread. Verse 19, dedicate the firstborn of every womb to God. Verse 20, redeem the firstborn of all your sons. Eat together, work together, make offerings and sacrifice together, rest together. Notice that's in there. And in all of this, keeping God at the center of your life and community, we will be worshiping in obedience together. And as... We are obedient in these practices. God's faithfulness continues to go before us. Look at verse 24. I will drive out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. As God speaks these words, we're to envision Moses writing them down. He's on the mountain with God in this moment as God speaks to him. It says for 40 days. That's about one and a half months. 40 days, he's not eating, he's not drinking. For 40 days, I can't go four hours. Something supernaturally powerful is going on here. Oh, who else spent 40 days and 40 nights? Yeah, Significant, number of significance here, repetitive for a reason. Everything pointing to Jesus. He's writing the words of the covenant, the words of the Ten Commandments. 
These stone tablets become the founding documents of the Israelite nation, the beginning of a people whose legacy would come in and go out like the tides of the ocean. They would rise, they would fall, they would cling to God, and they would reject Him. Sometimes they were faithful, often flailing. God never abandons nor forsakes them. He is with them. And when they practiced being with Him or in Him, they were changed. They were a changed nation when they lived in obedience to God's covenant. Much like Moses, whose whole face is brightened and reflective of the glory of the God that he has just spent so much time with. Look at verses 29 to 32. When he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with God. When Mo, when, when I talked with him, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to approach him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and Moses spoke to them. After this, all the Israelites approached, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. The fact that God's presence changed Moses' comp complexion. How important is that, friends? God's presence changed the complexion of Moses. We reflect the glory of the one whom we spend the most time with, the one who has the greatest influence in our lives. He will change the way that we think, the way that we live, and the way that we move through this world. And it is often this very change that God uses to help others glimpse and see his goodness and his glory. So a question may be for us today. How does our thought, how, do, how does our speech preach the gospel and shine the light of Christ to the people in our lives who are far from him? What are we communicating about God through the way that we live and through the way that we talk? Moses was changed because God's presence had transformed his countenance for the church as a whole and the individuals who are a part of it. We have been given an assignment to reflect the glory of God in this world through functioning as salt and as light in the spaces we are planted. How are we doing? How are we doing? Israel had fallen. They had made and bowed the lifeless idols of their own hands. Their sin, the root of all sin. Idolatry is the fuel that ignites the engine of sin in the world today. This and yet we've seen so clearly in our text that God will not abandon. In fact, he doubles down on his promise to be present with them. And along with this promise, he comforts us by reminding us that he knows our name, that we don't have to live faithlessly. We don't have to live restlessly. We can trust that God is with us right now. No matter how afraid we might be, no matter how hard things might be in our lives, no matter how difficult things might see here in the United States, no matter how hard things might seem in our communities, at our schools, at our job, the temptations of the world that are before us, that are ever in front of us or around us, to remember and to hold fast to the reality that our God is with us 
He knows our name and he promises rest. Rest. Are we changed by that reality? Truly changed and transformed. The God that was then is the same God today. The same God. And he has revealed himself to us in the most marvelous way that we could ever imagine in the person of Jesus. And in light of Jesus, we are to be a changed people, a hopeful people, a bright and shining people, a people transformed by the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God, reflecting that grace, mercy, and goodness back into the world we inhabit today. As we conclude and our team comes today, I want to ask us to stand together. Everybody, please stand. I want to recite together a scripture in the New Testament that speaks so clearly into our text today. So would you join me in the text that's on the screen from 2 Corinthians? But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory for another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Amen.